0: all right Colossians chapter 1 beginning of verse 24 here now are the words of the living and true God Paul writes now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body which is the church and filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister, according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the gentiles which is christ in you the hope of glory we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in christ for this purpose i also labor striving according to his power which mightily works within me Now, as we look at Paul's ministry to the church, um, I've broken it up into three main sections. And you'll see these outlined on the back of your bulletin notes. We'll begin with number one, and that's where we'll spend most of our time today as we look at God's minister. God's minister. And in verses 24 to 25, um, Paul gives an important and detailed look at the divine character of his ministry. And there are really four characteristics of his ministry that we can see in these couple of verses. And to see this first characteristic, we have to look at where we actually ended last week as there Paul introduces it to us. Notice what it says at the end of verse 23. You'll recall he's talking about continuing in the faith the hope of the gospel that you have heard which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and then notice and of which I Paul was made a minister. Here we see the source of Paul's ministry. God made Paul a minister. Now. If you have a NIV translation, you're looking at the word servant instead of minister. And that's because the word in the Greek is the word diakonos. And it's where we get our word deacon from. And it literally means a servant. A servant. It's actually a table waiter. A minister is a table waiter in the language. It's someone who takes away the dishes after the people eat and they clean the table. Paul sees himself as a common servant a minister of the gospel but he tells us something very important it's not of his own doing he has been made a diakonos he has been made a minister by god in fact in verse 25 he uses the same language again as again he says in verse 25 of this church i was made a minister of according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. So you see, Paul was made a minister by the sovereign hand of God. Now what's incredible about this is think back to when Paul was Saul. And as he comes onto the scene, he's introduced in the book of Acts, and you know the story, he's on the... Um, Damascus Road, heading not to minister to the Christians, but has papers in his hands to arrest them and to torture them. And so in Acts 26, 13, and if you want to just put a marker in Acts, we're going to be jumping back and forth to several chapters in Acts as we go through this morning. But in Acts 26, 13, if you do want to go ahead and turn there, Paul is recalling to King Agrippa what has happened to him. And as he met the Lord Jesus Christ on that Damascus Road experience. And he says there in verse 13, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me. And those who were journeying with me, and when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to take against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet for this purpose I have appeared to you. And then notice, to appoint you a minister, a diakonos, and a witness not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from the darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Saul never volunteered to become a minister of Jesus Christ. He was appointed one by the Lord himself. In Acts 9.15, Ananias hears that um, Saul's been blinded on the road to Damascus. And he's funny, he kind of wants to warn the Lord of Saul. Do do you know how dangerous this man is? Like the Lord doesn't know. And the Lord answers Ananias and says to him in verse 15, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel. God is the source of Paul's ministry. Saul is a chosen instrument of the Lord. So let's apply this to at the cross and antrim. Who's in charge here? Whose church is this? It is the Lord Jesus's. He is the head of the church. Now we are about essentially one thing. And one thing only, we are here to do the Lord's work. We are here to proclaim His message, and we are here to do it His way. The Lord has established His church out of His own divine providence. Since the very beginning, it has been entirely a work of God. The start of this church had maybe five or six guys, and Sitting around the table, I remember Pastor Rick and uh, Brother Don was there and Brendan and Dwayne and myself, and I remember before we would go to Dad's house to sit around uh, my mom's bed, we would be sitting at this square um, table that we pulled together at Rick and Diane's restaurant, and we would open up our Bibles and have these discussions. And then after, we would go up to the house and pile around uh, Mom's bed and sing a couple um, songs and praise the Lord and take communion. Well, after a while, um, this little area couldn't accommodate us anymore. And at that time, uh, there certainly was no money, uh, there was no church building, uh, there were no real plans on how or where we were going to gather. But uh, eventually, um, Dad did speak um, to the town about renting the second floor of the townhouse. Out, which by God's grace they did agree to, um, but it'd only be for a few months. And when that time was up, we would have to find somewhere else to go and meet. Well, most of you know what happened next uh, during that time. Tim, uh, my sister's uh, husband, uh, came to the Lord. And what you know, one night he had a dream and he was mowing a, a field right outside that window, um, the field up at that old stone church up on the hill in Antrim. Well. He was excited, of course, told my dad about this dream, but we all knew what kind of shape this place was in. We had talked about it. It had been sitting dormant for years, and there was a reason for that. It had no heat, no running water. It needed a ton of work, and again, we did not have any money for these needed repairs. But Pastor Rick did have a relationship with Jim Rimes, uh, the owner of it, and so he called him and he says, let me just give Jim a call and, and see what he has to say. Well, long story short, Jim not only said, Rick, I'll give you the church, uh, but he also said that he would cover the entire cost, over $230,000 to fix this place up. Trust me when I say, this is the Lord's church. <laughs> this is the Lord's church. The Lord has set the direction for his church and he alone has provided for it. And if the Lord causes this mystery to, come, uh, to continue for years to come, it will be of the Lord. We are the Lord's church. And I'll tell you, if you have a hidden agenda, um, if you have a hidden motive um, that is not in line with Christ's desire for this church, the Lord Jesus Christ will drive you out of this church. He will, I've seen it countless times. I've seen it happen over and over again. There have been things that we haven't been aware of until after, and the Lord handled them. The Lord did it. It's the Lord's church. So the source behind every true ministry is God himself, not man. Let's go back to Paul again. He is a diakonos. He is a servant. Uh, If you have been called by God into ministry, you are a servant of the Lord's church, and in order to be a minister of his church, you must be appointed by God. A minister is not someone who just aspires to be one. He must be a chosen instrument of the Lord. Think of how Paul often introduces himself in his letters. uh, Many times, as in Romans chapter 1, he calls himself Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. And that word for bondservant in the Greek is the word doulos, and it literally means a slave. A slave. I am a slave For the Lord Jesus Christ, that is a minister, a servant of the Lord. Paul was a man who was lowly in mind. He esteemed others better than himself. And therefore he had a heart of service for the Lord's church. Everything he did was motivated by serving the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, that should be common amongst all believers. We are all here to do the Lord's bidding, to do the Lord's work. We are here as the Lord's servants. So the first characteristic of Paul's ministry is God was its source. Paul was made a minister by God. He was a chosen instrument. Now, the second characteristic we see is the spirit of Paul's ministry. The spirit. First was the source. Second, we see the spirit of Paul's ministry. See if you can notice it in verse 24. Paul writes, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. What was the spirit of Paul's ministry? He's described it as a spirit of joy. Of joy. Paul says in his ministry he rejoiced in his suffering for the sake of the church. Now at first glance you might be thinking, how is this even possible? Because when I suffer, joy isn't really the natural response I'm going through. And yet throughout Paul's life as a minister, he was characterized by his Joyful communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. He wasn't characterized by his circumstances. But how is that? How is that? Well, for starters, the believer has a joy that the world cannot understand. Because this kind of joy is not of the world. It transcends the physical world. Joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It is supernatural. And only the Spirit-filled believer possesses it. Turn to Acts chapter 5 for a moment. Acts chapter 5. In Acts 5, Peter and the apostles are brought before the Sadducees for preaching the name of Christ. Um, They had already been imprisoned and warned to stop talking and teaching and preaching about the name. Stop talking about the name. And in verse 29... Luke writes, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him when they heard this they were enraged and wanted to kill them and then if you will jump down a couple of verses um, one of the most highly respected teachers is uh, Gamaliel um, and he orders apostles outside so they can discuss um, what they can do with them and so he says in verse 38 Gamaliel speaks up and he says to the other religious leaders So, in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. Verse 40, They took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they released them. So they, the apostles, went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they would be considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. The suffering that was inflicted at the flogging was to have a purpose. It was meant to deter the apostles from speaking and teaching the name of Jesus Christ. It was meant to deter them from preaching Jesus as the Christ. That was the very thing that the council did not want them to do. But it had the opposite effect, didn't it? It resulted in their joy. And they continued to boldly preach the name of Jesus But how is this even possible? It is only possible because it's not natural. It comes from God. This is the ministry. God will empower you to do supernatural things, to be able to get through what seems impossible. And so Paul details what a divine ministry should look like. Number one, its source should be from God. Number two, it should come in a spirit of joy, the ministry should be empowered by God and the spirit of ministry should be marked by joy. In Acts chapter 16, Paul experiences the exact same thing. Paul and Silas are in Philippi. There's the slave girl, you know the story. She's demon possessed, following behind them for days, aggravating, finally Paul gets tired of it and he casts out the demons that were in her. Verse 19, but when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. Jump down to verse 22. The crowd then rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore off their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into the prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. These early Christians suffered unimaginable persecution for the name. Just for being followers of Christ. At this point, Paul and Silas are likely bloody. They have been severely beaten with rods. They are now chained in prison but notice their response verse 25 but about midnight Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God and the prisoners were listening to them yes amen that's not a natural reaction to persecution and hatred toward you just consider our lives for a moment or take it personally and consider your life for a moment you know I mean, sometimes all it takes for us is to be in a rush and we're stuck at a red light too long and we're complaining. Yet Paul and Silas have actually been brutally beaten and they are singing praises to God. It's joy over circumstances. It's joy over circumstances. You see, joy isn't just some happy go lucky, um, giddy feeling, it's the deep down confidence that God is in control. That God is sovereign. And that, my friends, is satisfying and brings comfort and peace to your heart. And this joy is rooted in what God has already done for them. What He's already accomplished. It's rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Point number three, Paul suffered in his ministry. Now we've already been talking about this, but to emphasize that Joy is independent of circumstances. Paul tells the Colossians in verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Now, we are reminded once again, Paul's imprisoned in Rome. This could be referring in part to that. And though Paul is locked up once again, he could still rejoice despite this fact because he always viewed himself as wearing the chains for Christ. In Acts chapter 9 and 26, we learn that before Saul had his encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, Saul's intent that day was to find any belonging to the way. And his intent was not only to have both men and women locked up, but also they were being put to death and Saul even tried to force them to blaspheme the name of the Lord as their last thing to do. Now, there was one other thing that the Lord told Ananias about Saul back in Acts 9 that I left out. Acts 9, 15, we read, he's a chosen instrument of mine, the Lord says. He will bear my name before the Gentiles. But notice what the Lord says next in verse 13. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. This suffering that the Lord appointed for him characterized Paul's ministry. Everywhere he went, he was driven out. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. He was falsely imprisoned three times. He was beaten with rods five times. He was shipwrecked three times. He received 39 lashes from the Jews five times. He faced dangers on the sea, dangers from robbers, dangers from false brethren, danger danger from the Gentiles. And he did it all because of the ministry that he was called to and the joy that he had in the Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul gets to the end of his life, he's almost completed the race that God has called him to. He writes to his spiritual son in the faith, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. He says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Powerful verse. Now, there is a phrase that we need to discuss there that's at the end of Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Paul writes, And in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, um, if you talk to a Roman Catholic, they will use this as a proof text for purgatory. (laughs) Um That is not what Paul is referring to here. Um, Let's just first address what Paul is not saying. He is not making a statement here about Christ's atonement as if it was incomplete, as if there was something lacking, as if there was something that needed to be added to it. That's not what he's doing. That's not the case. The Lord Jesus Christ paid for all the sins for all of his people, past, present, and future, at the cross, And when his work was complete, he cried out, it is finished. The atonement was completed at the cross. This, lacking in Christ's afflictions that Paul is talking about, has everything to do with the believer's union and identity that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. Here in the first person to Paul. Um, If you go back to Acts chapter 9 in your mind, Saul's on the road to Damascus hunting Christians. And suddenly the bright light from heaven appears and shines all around him, and, and him and all of his men drop to the floor. And Jesus says something interesting, right? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So let's step back and ask a question here. Was Saul actually physically persecuting the person of Christ? No. So in what sense was Paul persecuting the, the Lord? He was persecuting those who were in the body of Christ. He was persecuting Christ's body, the church. He was persecuting those who abide in Christ. So back to verse 24. In what sense then were Paul's suffering filling up that which was lacking in Christ's afflictions? In the sense that Paul was now receiving the persecution That was intended for Christ. They do it to Christ. He wasn't there. And so they'll do it to those who are in Christ. And so when he says this, there is this identity between the believer and the Lord Jesus Christ where we share in Christ's suffering. I think we see this pictured best for us the relationship described from the words of Christ in John chapter 15. Turn to John chapter 15. Verse eighteen, as Jesus demonstrates, oh, I might have missed that. There we go. As Jesus demonstrates this very real relationship between uh, himself and the body of Christ, the church, that when the body is persecuted, Christ is being persecuted also. Notice what Jesus says in John fifteen eighteen: If the world hates you. Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are, are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Verse 21, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. So applying what Jesus is saying then, Paul was receiving the persecution that was intended for Christ. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 21. All these things they will do to you for my name's sake. So it was in that sense that Paul was rejoicing in his sufferings as he was filling up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions? For as he says in Galatians six, seventeen, where is it? I thought I had it. I just saw it somewhere there. There it is. I, this is Paul, I bear on my body the marks of Christ Jesus. And so number three was the immense suffering of Paul's ministry. This now leads us to the fourth aspect, the stewardship of Paul's ministry. And we see this in verse 25 as Paul continues. He says, of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Now this word for stewardship is a compound word in the Greek and it means um, a manager of someone else's household or or possessions, a steward. Um, Here Paul says, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. For whose benefit? For your benefit, the benefit of the church, the benefit of believers, the benefit of the body of Christ, the benefit for the souls of men. It's not my ministry, it's God's. The minister doesn't own it, it's not from him, it's simply on loan to him for a period of time. Paul's saying, I was given the responsibility of managing God's household. And that's part of what a minister is. He is described in the Bible as an overseer. It's not his church, it's the Lord's church. Paul says, I'm just a steward by his grace. Galatians 2, 7-8, through 8, Paul calls it being entrusted with the gospel. And that is why in Titus 1, 7-9, he describes a pastor as a steward of God holding firm to the trustworthy word so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That's Titus 1, 7-9. Now, how does this truth apply to us? I think there are two questions that we are faced when we are thinking of this term um, term stewardship. One is individual and then one is collectively. Um, The first one, individually. Ask yourself, if I am a believer, what am I doing with the gifts that God has given me? The gifts that he has given you is your stewardship. That is yours are we burying them in the ground until the master comes again? You and I will have to answer for how we have used our gifts that God has given us for his glory. And then I want to answer the second question collectively as stewards of this church. Notice what it says at the end of verse 25. Paul says, of this church, I was made a minister according to stewardship from God, bestowed on me for your benefit so that, now here's the reason of his stewardship, so that, I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, or as the ESV translates it, are we seeking to make the word of God fully known? That's the cornerstone of this that this church is built on, making the word of God fully known. As your minister, according to the stewardship from God, bestowed on me for your benefit... My main concern going into each week prayerfully is that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. If we collectively only get one thing right, it will be faithfully preaching God's word in order to make him fully known. Everything else that we do, while there are many good things that we do, is secondary to the teaching and preaching of God's word. That was Paul's focus. That is our focus. We better move on to point number two. You guys aren't listening quick enough. I'm just kidding. Point number one was God's minister. Point number two was God's mystery. And these are much shorter. God's mystery. We see this in verses 26 and 27. Notice what Paul says. That is the mystery. Let's deal with this word mystery. The Greek word is mysterion. It means something that's been hidden. It means something that has not yet been revealed the message Paul proclaimed in his ministry was the mystery we continue reading which has been hidden from the past ages and generations but has now been manifested to his saints to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you the hope of glory that's a Pauline sentence the mystery that has been hidden to this point in part is Gentile salvation. That's what he's talking about here. Before the Lord Jesus Christ became a man, before he came to this earth, if you were a Gentile and believed in the one true God of Isaac, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob, you would essentially become Jewish. You'd become a, what's called a proselyte. All right? Salvation's the same, saved by faith. But then they would put you into the practice of being a Jew, living as a Jew under God's law. And for us to kind of understand what Paul is teaching here, I think it would be helpful if we saw an example of it played out. So turn to Acts chapter 10, and and Peter gives us a great example of this. And we'll have to kind of jump through it just with the time that we have left. Acts chapter 10, um, you know the story, Peter and Cornelius... And uh, we'll jump around a little bit. We're going to start in verse 9, but I do want to hit this because this explains exactly what this text is about. And, and this is about you, the Gentile. It says in verse 9, On the next day, as they were on their way approaching the city, Peter went up to the house top, and about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat, but while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky open up and an object like a great sheet coming down lowered by four corners to the ground and there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice comes to, came to him a second time. What God has cleansed No longer consider unholy. Now, a little hint here. God is talking about food, but he's really talking about Gentiles. Verse 16. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Jump down to verse 24. On the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now, Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up, I too am just a man. As he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled. Now here's the point, verse 28. And Peter said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner, a Gentile or to visit him, and yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy and unclean. That refers back to the food, okay? See that it was about food, but not really. It's about the Gentiles. Verse 34, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Uh, jump down to verse 44 peter preaches his sermon Um, while peter was still speaking these words the holy spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message all the circumcised believers who came with peter were amazed these are all the jewish believers who came with peter they are amazed remember the gospel came first to the jew and then to the gentile this is gentile pentecost Verse 45, and they were all amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit has been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, surely no one can refuse water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. This plan of salvation for the Gentiles has always been God's plan. The Abrahamic covenant all the way back in um, Genesis 12 was where Abraham's family and through him God said all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But it has been partially um, hidden, veiled if you will, this mystery but when the fullness of time has come, Galatians 4.4 4 says, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. So, looking at our verse, that is, Paul says, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God will to make known what is the riches of, of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And what is this um, mystery further, you ask, besides salvation for Gentiles? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ dwelling in his believers through the Holy Spirit, the hope of glory. Salvation has never been so accessible as it is at this very point in history. As Gentiles in times past, we were separated from Christ. And the mystery is that God saves Gentiles as Gentiles, and the two now have become one in Christ. We referred to this last week, but in Ephesians 2, verse 12, speaking of the Gentiles, this is you and me, Paul writes, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ." excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants and promises, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far far off, and remember the word we saw last week, and alienated, have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, jumped down to the end, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. All right, let's hit this last point real quick. Number three is God's message. God's message, verse 28. I need a drink. Verse 28, we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Paul's message was clear as a minister, to proclaim him, the one who saved Saul all those years ago on that Damascus road. That word to proclaim here means to um, publicly to declare. In the context here, it means to publicly declare the whole truth, the whole counsel of God's word, not part of it, not some of it, the entire world. now paul lists four parts of his singular message the first that he proclaimed or that he preached christ first corinthians 2 1 through 12 paul writes when i came to you brethren i did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of god and here was his message for i determined to know nothing among you except jesus christ and him crucified Another example of this is when Paul goes to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. He's um, getting right ahead to Jerusalem. The Spirit has told him in every city, um, bonds, chains, and afflictions await him. But he tells them in Acts 20, 20, I did not shrink away from declaring to you anything that was profitable. I gave you the whole counsel of God, the entire truth of God's word. Paul always preached the full counsel of God, always pointing people to Christ. Paul says I taught you the entire word of God. That's what Paul's charges to Timothy as his parting words in 2 Timothy chapter 4, 1 through 2. He says, "I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by the appearing of his kingdom, preach the word, Timothy. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort." with great patience and instruction. Paul knows he's about to be poured out as a drink offering. His time is up. His final words to his spiritual son Timothy is what? Preach the word. Preach the word. Because he knows the word is that which is the power unto God for salvation. It's why we preach verse by verse here. When you preach verse by verse, you're forced to deal with the full counsel of God. Even the difficult texts, why do we do it? It's because of Romans 10, 14 through 17. It's how God draws his people to himself. Faith comes from hearing, hearing through the words of Christ. And so as a church, if we do not preach God's word, if we do not study God's word, if we do not seek to teach God's word, my question to you is this, who will? Who will? Isn't that what we've been called to do, to be a witness to the lost? Always being prepared, 1 Peter 315 says to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason of the hope that is in you isn't that why god has given us individually spiritually gifts to co-partner with christ to be his witnesses to build the kingdom of god through the sharing and love of christ let me ask you this do you believe in the sufficiency of scripture do you believe that the gospel is the power of god unto salvation for everyone who believes how will they believe in him whom they have not heard how will they hear them without the preacher? How will they preach unless they have been sent? Now the power is in God. It's always been in God and is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It is not in us. It is not in the preacher. God is the one who changes people's hearts. We do His bidding, but God changes the heart of His people through His Word and through His Holy Spirit. Closing up here, verse 28, So we proclaim... We proclaim admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man and woman here complete in Christ. Our ministry should have both an an admonishing and there's a warning, there's a reproving, there's a correction of error. And then the admonishing and then the positive side is the teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present them complete in Christ. Paul says... In uh, Philippians three, twelve through 14 of himself, not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so I may lay hold of that which is also I laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reach forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We close with verse 29 and Paul's response. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power which is mightily at work within me. The real power behind Paul's ministry striving for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus is God himself the spirit of God. God is the power. He is the source of the power. He's the one that provides the power to his people. God is the one who saves. He's the one that is active in the growth and the sanctification of his people. And Paul knew that. Paul knew that was behind his efforts was God's power. And again, this is a point where we see um, sort of the touching of, of God's power and man's responsibility as well and the sovereignty of God working altogether it's what he would write to the philippians where he said work out your salvation with fear and trembling that responsibility live it out do what he's called you to do well that will be the end of our word from the lord today if you need any prayers we'd love to be able to pray with you welcome to come forward as we stand and sing the song of invitation praise the lord he's our living hope thank you